Today I'm having a conversation with Isaac Roth. Isaac and I go back to the early days of OpenShift at Red Hat. In its infancy, before it even had the name OpenShift, or anybody could get it. This conversation is not about that, though maybe someday we'll do one. Sometimes I have conversations with people who are interested in podcasting and what it's all about and how it works and what it takes and all that kind of stuff. And usually I just suggest that we record something and just start doing it. Today's conversation is one of those. It was a reflective Saturday morning conversation we had in October of 2020 about what Isaac was seeing in technology and the world around him. It's an exploration and a reflection on what it's like to be five houses away from having your house destroyed by fire and the process he and his family went through to save as much as they could. I've always respected Isaac on a number of different levels. One of them is his ability to be optimistic and see possibilities, which often clashed with my cynical, skeptical project manager's hat that I wore when I was at Red Hat and we worked together. I think in this conversation you'll see some of that optimism come out and the possibilities he sees in places where others might not see possibility. Here we go. We're recording. Is this thing on? Yeah. Where have you been? I've been evacuated because my home was under threat of the wildfires. So are you back home? Yep. We did not burn. Um, We were lucky and uh, some great firefighting by the local fire fire department, which is all volunteers managed to save us. The fire was held five houses away. Whoa. We had a bit of cleanup to do after that, but we're just grateful. Five houses away? Yeah. It's really uh, sad and... Surreal. Yes. And it it has had me thinking about something that that I thought would be fun to talk about, which is that the world is decomposing. I mean this in a very literal way. The forests are decomposing through a natural process, which happens uh, periodically. Fire. Other things are decomposing as well. Nation states are segmenting. Social groups are decomposing into smaller and smaller crews. Everyone now only exists in a pod. Uh, So we we see sort of small pods of people. There are micro-factions of beliefs and social structures. And of course, you know, we work in technology. Technology components are are decomposing into, or might, some people might say composing, but there, there are smaller and smaller parts available. Skipping right to the enterprise software world, you don't buy 
everything in your enterprise from Oracle anymore or Microsoft. You now use hundreds of companies worth of software. Even in your home, big brands are no longer dominant. You don't go to the store and buy 30% of your groceries from Kraft. People seek out small, independent labels, brands that they can relate to. There's a proliferation of micro products. You don't go to the mall anymore and get everything done. You you go to many small stores, many of them online, uh, people's Etsy shops. You don't only get your entertainment from HBO. You surf across YouTube channels. You might back a few artists on Patreon who are delivering you and only maybe a few hundred other people special content. There are many things that are following this pattern and it's something of a natural ecology. It's in my mind, I think it's enabled by the internet. So we're, we're all connected in a way that we didn't used to be. And this allows us to be individual. And this has been you know, predicted many times. Uh, the, the era of micro entertainment has been predicted but it's, I think it's affecting everything, and the coronavirus is making it more apparent as we exist in pods how things are more rapidly decomposing into little pieces that we can recompose individually for our own uses, creating micro worlds of more richness than was ever possible before through the accessibility of information, products, uh, technology. You, you can now assemble things in many ways. If, if you're a maker, if you're an artist, if you're an information consumer, you can have access to all kinds of stuff you couldn't get at before because you couldn't find it. And now you can find it and someone will play it to you, display it for you, ship it to you. And everybody thinks about this as something that is negative. Oh my goodness, the world is decomposing. California is on fire. Nation states are crumbling. Our social fabric is decomposing. We all, you know, we all hate each other. People are on opposite sides of, of issues. But the thing is that it's, it's not decomposing into major factions. There, there isn't an one side and the other. There isn't A and B. There isn't California and the rest of the United States. There's many, many little pieces. And maybe that's a good thing it might be helpful for us to be allied around certain large topics. We need to work together, for example, to curb carbon emissions. It makes sense to work together to have a transportation system where we pool resources to allow people to move, uh, something like the highway system. It makes sense to pool together and write laws that affect all of us because they're relevant to everybody 
and pool our resources, but it also makes sense to do things more individually. We don't need to decry the the individuality or the micro ecosystems that are forming as being against cooperation. In fact, they might be greater ways of cooperation. And so I have this metaphor that I've been thinking about, which many people have heard about this story of the professor who comes with all these rocks and sand to the front of the table and, 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 a, and a glass bowl or, or a glass vase. And she pours the sand in and then she pours the little rocks and then there's no room to fit the big rocks. And then she does it again and she pours the big rocks and then she pours the small rocks and she pours the sand and it fills in all the cracks and it makes room and everything fits. It just depends what order you put it in. And I'm thinking about that image of maybe this decomposition that is happening is a way for us to fit and make room for everything and everybody. We have more capacity, more space than we think we have. The, the predominant narrative that people are worried about and that's making everyone anxious is one of scarcity. Our social justice is threatened by a feeling of scarcity. We are erecting walls around nations because we're worried there aren't enough resources. We are being very protective. We're worried we are not allowing people in to our hearts, to our minds, to our physical spaces, because we don't feel that there's enough space for them. We don't feel that we can share, even though we might be generous in our hearts, because there isn't enough for us, for our children. What if this decomposition that feels painful in the moment, it's difficult to breathe the smoke that I'm breathing right now, to look at the destruction five houses away and further beyond where many, many things have burned, to clean all the ash off of my driveway and my porch. This is really heart-wrenching, but maybe this is a reordering of things that's making space, that's creating new possibility, that's going to unravel this feeling of scarcity, which we don't need to have because there is room. And now let's take this into technology and modern enterprises. We're, by, by having more customization, by having low-code types of platforms which allow more people to become coders of sorts and create logic by having more information, by having uh, crawlers and indexers and new databases that allow us to access so much information, by having artificial intelligence, something people are scared of, but which can help us organize and find more information, create new products and offerings uh, navigate through so much diversity, there's room for more. There's room for more creativity. There's room for more people. There's room for more people's needs. There's more room for in individuality. There's room for customization. Not everything has to be the same or mass produced. Uh, we can have AIs that program robots that produce things that are individualized 
or common thousands of configurations instead of tens of configurations. We can all have our own dish soap that's programmed to our particular needs, smells the way we want it, and works with the water that we have and our skin type. This is exciting. And so while it maybe feels really sad and divisive and we're all worried, we could be on the brink of something truly transformative where the fires, the political environment, uh, the social justice system are all under transformation. And at the other side, this may not land in total destruction and scarcity and suffering. It may land in a kind of euphoria that we can't imagine right now. Because historically, we are really bad at at understanding the future, and typically, we underestimate it. How's that for a start, John? (laughs) You were on a roll. Hmm. Yeah, so many different things come to mind. In the beginning, the idea of the long tail. Was that Chris Anderson? Right, the long tail, yeah. This idea of little, you know, millions and millions of songs instead of one hit record. And it's already happening. TikTok is millions and millions of videos instead of one movie. Uh, Platforms like SoundCloud and Bandcamp allowing exposure for millions of creators of music instead of everyone listening to Taylor Swift. It doesn't mean there's not room for Taylor Swift. There's room for popular anthems that give us a feeling of united unification and and connection with each other. It's fun to listen to the same things, to understand each other and participate in a common theme. It's also really fun to find something that is unique to a small community of people. And then there's a, there's a paradox that I see, which is there's, there's room for everyone. And yet, we're in these pods, which I like that idea of pods, because when I think pod, you can only be in one. There's no overlapping pods. Maybe there are, but when I think of like a pod, it's it's hermetically sealed <laughs> so that you're only in your pod. And when I think of the our current political climate, there's two like defined camps, but I don't place myself into either one. I kind of straddle. I'm. I have part. I like parts of one and parts of the other, but I don't say yes. I identify with this one. Well, and many people feel exactly that way. They don't identify as one hundred percent or even eighty percent aligned with one of the two major political parties, and so it does seem like there should be an ability to define smaller ways of influencing policy that are more personalizable because that is the sense, right? Although it's hard for a a minor platform to attain some momentum, most people, 
the majority of people do not feel 100% aligned with the choices that are being offered to them. And when that same phenomena swept through enterprise software, cable TV, uh, or even local restaurants, they, they decomposed, um, they, more choices became available. You could connect things with each other. I mean, these days, my, my neighbors, my neighbors are doing a lot of uh, home delivery takeout. You know, they order their salads from one place and their desserts from another. Hmm. <laughs> you can do yeah. that now. You know? <laughs> and the mall was the beginning of that, right? The food court where you could, you could have your appetizer from one food vendor and you could get your main course from another. That, that can maybe happen with, with uh, infrastructure, with policy. And we all have to agree on the same policy, but do we have to do it in such large chunks of the population, of the geography? Uh, can there be the ability to craft particular packages that work for different populations? And still have uh, cooperation. So I like your optimistic view of the future. Are there historical, like, can you think of historical events that demonstrate that this is possible? Well, I'm not much of a historian, but we could get one on here. <laughs> And we could ask them about this. I, I and I see where you're going. In other words, the the death. Well, I almost decom, decomposition. I almost think death, death and rebirth. And I remember when I was younger, I grew up in Southern California, and we would go to the Sierras in the summer. And I remember we would go to the little ranger programs, and they would talk about fire being a good thing. And they, I don't know what the current philosophy approaches, but they would do these controlled burns where they would intentionally burn certain parts of the forest because the fire would, would, it would clean stuff out. But I think for certain trees, it would actually open the pine cones or whatever that would let the seeds out so that they could then grow and become reforested. That's right. Here in the Santa Cruz Mountains, uh, we have a number of species which require the fire to germinate seed. Um, one of the most beautiful to me is the madrone trees. And up the road here, there's complete destruction. And already there's been no rain, right? It's incredibly hot. And already there is greenery, tons of it springing from the ground. Uh, so that metaphor, I think, really holds. Um, it is super painful and difficult to experience the the burn, and and it's happening in many places. Uh, you know, you could think about defund the police as a movement to do a controlled burn. 
I think the idea is not that we won't have police afterward, but rather, I mean, I did debate this with someone uh, who is a part of that movement. The, the concept there is not that we won't have police. The concept is that we need to change how they work and that a sort of controlled burn type of approach might be what is needed because an incremental uh, kind of let's let's go through the forest and rake and uh, <laughs> chop and you know use chainsaws on the dead wood and everything is is not working quickly enough is their perspective. So there, yes, I mean there, if, if we don't tend to these things and and steward them and trim away and rake and cut to make room for new things, then it seems there will just be the burn that comes through. It's much more painful, uh, but it makes space. And so while we're all fixated so much on how terrible this feels, and in particular, this feeling of, of scarcity, you know, when I've been chatting with friends about the thing that got me here is uh, many friends are worried, you know, what's going to happen? Is there going to be a civil war? Is there going to be uh, a radical change in policy? Is there going to be a, you know, an environmental meltdown, uh, which makes things, you know, rearranges our cities and makes things worse for our children? It, it feels like scarcity. Hey, what I have is going to be taken away from me. And that may be true. What we have may be taken away from us. But often when things are taken away from us, it makes space. I mean, everybody, at the same time, people are worried about that. You know, every single person who has uh, cleaned their house or given away or thrown away old things has found relief. Uh, no person I've ever talked to said, wow, I went through this huge project and I purged all kinds of old stuff. I feel terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm really missing things. I'm really feeling depressed. No, Nobody says that, right? <laughs> um, it's difficult to let go, but it, but it is something that makes space. And in the, in the field that, you know, I work in, you have worked in, in software, nobody's, nobody's saying like, oh my God, I miss my data center, right? They've, they've moved to the cloud. They've thrown away a lot of old stuff, sometimes physical stuff. I've seen dumpsters full of network switches and they're not saying, you know, the corporations are better because the framework is constant progress, so that's more easy to recognize the benefit of of decomposition of destruction of rearranging things and so we don't cry out oh my god where did my data center go i miss it i miss my oracle instance you know <laughs> i miss my sybase database we, well those things have all been replaced by something better though it, exactly but when I think about your friends, I want to go back there. What's the, what would be the opposite? So in other words, and I relate to this a lot because I, I, I'm in the midst of a news fast because I was in this hamster wheel of, of checking the news 
to hopefully find something that would make me feel better about what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and realizing that I need to find that inside of myself, not like I need to find that inside, not outside. The, if I'm going to try to find that outside, it's never going to work. But for your friends, what would be the opposite of, of this focus of scarcity and, and how might we help them? A possibility. And I Ooh, think which is that what you're at? Okay. Yeah. That's what you're advocating. News. The news fast is a perfect example. Um, rather than trying to consume in order to find peace and encouragement and maybe a dopamine hit, uh, once you stop consuming, eventually you're, you'll, you're, the free space that you have will likely be filled in with creation. Oh, you are so, <laughs> you are so right. Last night I was sitting in my chair with my computer. I was like, well, I can't read the news. And I, and I also added to that list the social media sites. I thought, what am I going to do? And I just sat and I don't remember what I ended up doing, but it was weird. It was like, oh, I have a block of space because I'm not doing this other thing. That's nice. Did you have any thoughts? I'm trying to remember. I don't know that I did. I, maybe, <laughs> I think the thought that I had was, you know, there's a big mess in the kitchen. I should just go clean that up. Yeah. And if I go clean it up, um, I could listen to a interesting podcast or something or not. But, but yeah, it was, it was kind of just kind of moving on with things instead of going deeper into the swamp. It, eventually, right? So if you do it for a year, you'll run out of things to clean up and organize. And, uh, and, and I know this because you, you see this with people that disconnect themselves from the consumption loop is eventually you run out of sort of infrastructure to create, right? Eventually you, you, you clean up, you build your home, you organize things. And then at some point you start to create stuff. You say, well, let me plant a garden. Let me tend to fish. Let me, do some writing. Let me play this instrument. Uh, and that is creating new possibilities. Even the idea of sitting with your thoughts is, you know, once you sort of grind through all the ones that have been stored up, Hey, I've been meaning to think about that, or this memory is coming back to me. At some point you start to synthesize new ideas just from the natural moment of sitting with a clear mind. Now they may not be actionable ideas. They may not be worthwhile ideas for any particular purpose, but I think when we make space, we inevitably create. Yeah, I really like that. I hadn't, yeah. And I'm also thinking of sitting there. There's also just sitting in the discomfort of the space too and not reaching for something else. Mm-hmm. That's a necessary uh, thing to go through, of course. And it's that's actually a very difficult process 
to untrain. And I'm not speaking as a, as a wise person here because I'm like anyone else. I like to reach for something and consume it. Um, but I did, I did spend time, uh, training a bit and living with some monks and, and focusing on having very little stimulus and, and, uh, connecting more to sort of nature and natural processes. Um, and that's, that's what led to that observation actually. And it's, it's really just born of looking at the forest. Anytime there's space, something will arise to fill that space. Now, when I think of startups and that whole world that you live in, I don't think of any space at all. I think of go, go, go 24 seven. We've got to get more funding. We got to go public. How's this going to work? Go, go, go. Right. And, and if you looked at the forest floor right now, it would look the same. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It just depends on your view. If you, if you zoom up to being a person walking in the forest, you think, wow, it's desolate here. There's a few sprouts that look pretty promising. If you get down into the fungal layer beneath the leaves and into the seeds that are down there in the roots, it's go, go, go. It looks like you're inside of Y Combinator. And, and I think that's kind of the same in the, in the startup ecosystem. You know, if you're, if you're trying, if you're a, a business trying to solve a problem, you know, I'm involved in this transportation business, right? We have so many problems and, and interesting inefficiencies. And we look around and like nobody, yes, there's some platform that could maybe solve our problem, but this platform also comes with tons of other things we have to do. And we have to change so many things and adjust our workflows. And it feels really hard to integrate. And so when we look from that perspective, I think when you look from from the industry's perspective at the technology offerings, you see some sprouts. You see, oh yeah, okay, there's some things sprouting up, you know, the cloud, artificial intelligence, you know, com- cameras and computers, stuff that I can take advantage of maybe, let me give this a try. But it doesn't look like an incredible flourishing of, of possibility. That's just because that's the perspective you have. If you go inside of a startup incubator, it looks like you just said, go, 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 (laughs) get more funding, get new ideas. There's so much possibility. Wow. Which of these things. And, and the same is true. Um, maybe one that's a little easier to relate to is the, uh, medicine and pharmaceutical and therapies industry. Right, we here we all are, and there's a, a a pandemic virus, and we can read about certain sprouts. There's there's some possibilities in treatment therapies and vaccines that could lead to a better life, um, but they are they don't seem that applicable just yet. And maybe you get access to a little bit of something. You know, you can get a PCR test. You might be able to go get a lateral flow test if you're lucky. What are those? This is like a like a pregnancy test where you, you'd put like spit or blood on a piece of paper and a line would turn a color to, to see if you have uh, any um, SARS-2 or uh, SARS-CoV 
uh, uh, infection. Um, I think those are going to become more and more available. But, but if you zoom in and you go inside the world of people who are working on um, new compounds, new therapies, synthetic biology, computational biology, it's just go, 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 go. There's so much possibility. There's, there's incredible things to be done. There's scale-up processes to be built. There's manufacturing to be created. There's yeast fermentation and um, computational uh, algorithms to be created. There's things to be test. There's efficiencies to be found in the clinical trial process. There's, you know, some of these vaccines are going to require storage at uh, low, very low temperatures. There's a whole logistics chain to be built. Um, so, so there's always, there's always go, go, go places. And there's always places of quiet I think for each of us individually, we need to choose from day to day or month to month where we want to live in that level. Um, if you look at the forest, I suspect that most of us like to live somewhere in the middle. It's not super comfortable to be always like, go, 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 go. Although people like me really thrive and love it there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's not super comfortable to be on the trailing end uh, for most, although some like it. That's what's funny. I find myself moving more and more in that direction. And are you trending towards the more and more rural parts of Oregon? <laughs> oh, I would love to. Like that's one of my dreams. That's one of my dreams. Yes, uh, lots of land and uh, yeah, neighbors far away. For me, the word is stillness. I'm adding more and more space to my days. And, you know, the, the jury is still out. Like, how can this work long term? But, yeah, I'm adding more and more space to my days. And it's hilarious when I talk to people. They're like, well, I better let you go. I know you're really busy. <laughs> it's like, no, I'm not. I intentionally designed my day so that none of my meetings are back to back. And, that I'm talking to you because I really want to, and I'm making myself 110% present to you. This is all I'm doing right now. So yeah, I, I don't know. I'm finding a richness and yeah, ideas and creativity and those things like starting to sprout, like you're saying. And what a gift, right. And a privilege. So, so totally you and I can craft different things. You, you can drift more and more toward the rural, like you said, living far away distance from the neighbors. Um, and having moments of quiet and having physical space of quiet and structuring your day with time to be available. And I can live in the inner city, um, which I do when I'm not in Santa Cruz mountains and, and I can pack my, my calendar into ever smaller slices switching from one thing to the other rapidly because I don't even have to walk from a conference room to another one. <laughs> <laughs> so it's gotten even worse. <laughs> I can, I can work on three computers at once, which, which I do. Um, and, and consume and process a ton of information and, and we can live these different styles or participate in these different styles of work 
and life. And yet we can connect as we are right now and pollinate each other's ideas. And that can happen not just between you and me, but between corporations, between individuals working for uh, different corporations, between people who are representing different nation states, different political ideologies, different resource pools that are working at different speeds with different levels of privilege and access. Uh, And we could do it on audio. We can do it on video. We can do it just by sharing ideas. We can make TikTok videos and share them with each other. I I enjoy looking at TikTok, uh, not because of my love of, of meme dances or anything, but because it gives me a moment to connect with people who are living a life that's so different than mine and to try to understand and have a view into, into what their moment is like. Uh, it's such a rich medium for that. And that's just cultural connection. Mm-hmm. You know, I also enjoy reading scientific papers for the same basic type of reason is I can immerse myself in the world of a scientist who has done this research and synthesized it for my consumption and, and try to understand a moment of what it's like to be in that world and the possibilities that that person's encountering. That is, that is a kind of space that's available and it's made possible by decomposition, right? If I had to actually go to that person's town learn their TikTok dance, meet the father that they have who is performing in the background of their video, earn their trust so that they would actually perform this for me. I mean, that would take a long time and I wouldn't get as much opportunity to do that. But I don't. I could just tune into their channel. And similarly, if I had to immerse myself in a research lab, right, become knowledgeable enough to earn the trust of the person that it was worthwhile for them to give the time to whiteboard out and explain to me exactly how this experiment went and what they were working on and how it reacted. Uh, You know, there's only time to do that so much. So, but I don't need to do that. I can just consume their research paper and I even could interact. I could read their paper. I could formulate a reasonable question. I could, I could email or write to them, uh, maybe participate in some, exchange with them on reddit or whatever and and they if if my question is thoughtful they might even respond to me i love the optimism that you like uh, it's so funny you say tiktok i don't have tiktok i've never had the app on my phone all i know is you know of course what i read in the news or used to read in the news (laughs) that the chinese are spying on me if i were to use it so i'd be like oh yeah that's invasion of my privacy and you have this completely different it's beautiful. Well, some of these things are true, right? I mean, every time I type something, yeah, yeah, (laughs) it's It's, totally both. Yes. It's definitely a trade, right? And in exchange for me having instant access to a research paper about algal cell cultures, you know, Google and various other infrastructure that I'm using now knows that I'm interested in that. Yes. Yes. And they probably know where you live and all that other stuff. Right, so and they've tied that together into a profile, which 
you know, plausibly could be used against me in some way yes. and has been for some people. Um, but, but that's the trade that, that I'm making. Uh, I think that trade does privilege the privileged. And that's something that, that we have to solve a bit is that these things are calibrated to extend the privilege of those who are already privileged so it makes the gap wider. Definitely. And that's something we're, we're experiencing uh, in the forest. You know, I'm looking at the forest and like the big, tall redwood trees survived the fire and everybody else burned. They're fire resistant, aren't they? To some degree? Yeah, when they're big enough, they are. And Or is that the sequoias? Th- or well, they both are? They both are a form of redwood, yeah. And, and there's other trees and organisms as well that are that are able to, they they enjoy that privilege um and i think that that happens in our in our society as well you know, certain people are in, enjoy enough a mass of, of resource that they're more privileged and more able to survive decomposition destruction and potentially even take great advantage of it uh, where others are suffering more from it. So that's something that we need to grapple with as a as a part of the complexity of evolving and accepting this idea. But I do think there's so much attention spent to how horrible this all is that it's nice to cast some light on the types of possibilities that it that it enables. And really, I mean, it's not different. It wouldn't be interesting. And we'd be just like the news if we were making a podcast that, that talked more about how everything is becoming horrible. <laughs> <laughs> that would be easy. Yeah. That would be so, very, that'd be very easy. <laughs> so why not take the other side? <laughs> What's it like to prepare and to actually evacuate your house? <laughs> it's so scary. I'll tell you what we did. It was very systematic. I think in a panic, the way it started for me was my partner, Jamie has, you know, is a collector of handmade objects. It's part of her aesthetic is that she really adores one of a kind things. And so Throughout her life, she's collected these, you know, special objects. They're not all handcrafted. Some are manufactured objects, but they have the patina of time about them or they've, they've suffered through something. You know, one is this log. It's just a log, but it was burned in a fire and it was burned in a certain way. And there's no other log like that. Um, you know, another is a guitar, but it's, it's a guitar that was passed to her from her father who got it from his father right so uh she so so there are many such objects in our in our home and i I have a discipline around the news cycle where i only tap into it uh once a day and so um as i had done that right after dinner i realized that the fire was spreading rapidly in in our direction we were not at this home at the time, and um, we were up in San Francisco working on uh, working on a project, and and so I 
thought about this and went, huh, um, this is, looks like it's heading in the direction of our home. And we talked about it. And the thing that was the pivotal moment for me was, uh, and Jamie grew up in, in Colorado in forest fire areas, so she's some, somewhat familiar with this feeling. There's all these objects in the home. And I looked at her and she was sort of processing what might happen. And I said, are you going to sleep tonight? <laughs> And she's, she just looked at me. She said, no. <laughs> mm. And I said, okay, well, our, our daughter's asleep. She's three, um, which gives us some time to work independently. If we're not going to sleep anyway, why don't we just go pack it all up? <laughs> mm. And so we just lifted our daughter out of bed, put her in the car seat, uh, and we drove to the house, and we... And we packed all night. And and in this kind of situation, I get really rational. So I just I on the way there we developed we developed a system. You know, what were we gonna go through and grab? You know, we had we had one car available. What could we take with us? And so the the obvious thing was, you know, so we kind of just established levels, right? Like First, you want to grab the most difficult to replace things, or the of of the things that are irreplaceable. You want the ones that are that feel the most uh, the most essential, and and some selection for size. Like, you know, there was this irreplaceable grandma's rocking chair, but taking that is a big trade off for many smaller objects because we have one vehicle. And we only have so much time because our daughter will wake up at some point and we're exhausted and it's been a long day. So we get to the property, it's one thirty in the morning and um, it's incredibly hot. Uh, there was a heat wave and a fire nearby. It was just really, really hot. So we're, we're sweating, we're exhausted. We're, But I just did circles through the house. Like, okay, first let me look for anything like just completely irreplaceable that's small. You know, files, photographs, uh, birth certificate, whatever. Then I went for things that are not irreplaceable, but really difficult to replace either because they're incredibly, you know, expensive or because the amount of effort, like, like paperwork or, you know, going to a certain place in order to replace those things would be, would be really, really problematic. So I kind of went for that. And then we did have some small space available after we did all that. And so then I went through and looked for, you know, anything that's just expensive that is small. Don't really have a lot of small and expensive objects, but there were a few things that are, you know, very small, but actually cost like, you know, like this microphone I'm talking to you, right? It's like a hundred dollars, but it's tiny. So it was easy to throw in my backpack. Um, and we just did that. We kind of ran circles and each of us checking the other's work. I was amazed at how well orchestrated it was. Uh, for you know, for kind of a panic situation, <laughs> mm-hmm. but we, we also had the benefit like we didn't have pets or anything that would clearly be your first. And then we went through and we just sort of said goodbye to a lot of stuff. You know, uh, for wow. Jamie, it was her plants. She just she spent a, some real moments with her plants, just saying goodbye. And uh, the home has many memories, so we kind of went and and talked about a few memories and thought about that and appreciated i found myself really appreciating sort of offering some appreciation to the space thanks for containing all these wonderful memories and 
there's a lot of stuff we couldn't take with us. So kind of objects, you know, I had some favorite articles of clothing and thing that I was like, yeah, if I need to let go, I'm going to let go of that. And I'm going to just sort of appreciate the good times we had together. Uh, you know, it's it really hard. It was kind of bizarre. And, and you, just, you know, you can't take stuff. So you just like, I'm looking through the whole kitchen going like, yeah, it's, what am I going to do? Pack up the kitchen? No. So, okay. I really loved those plates and, oh, that's the spice rack my mom gave me. And, oh, I have a, a memory, you know, of cleaning out that microwave oven because this thing exploded all over it, but it was super fun. Cause I was having fun with my friends with me. It accidentally exploded a pie in the oven, you know, there's just like memories that poured in and then, yeah. And then it was about four thirty in the morning and it, we were sweaty and hot and tired. And, and I thought, okay, should we, it's kind of dangerous to drive right now. Should we sleep a little? So we went outside to like, look at the stars and, and just have a moment of thinking after all this moment of panic this is like a real effort, right? You're sort of pushing and care. It's like you're having to process emotion and thought at the same time, but be quick about it, right? Uh, be efficient. Um, you know, climb up into the attic, look around, make sure there's not anything up here that I missed or or is is a real sort of special object that I, I should maybe grab. You know, go down in the basement, make sure that things are turned off and packed up and there's no, if something melts on top of this or it gets really hot, it's not going to, explode or whatever you know move the propane tanks away from the house stuff like that and uh after doing all this prep work there's just a moment okay let's take a moment to like uh to reflect and and just think about things and and also tap into tiredness let the adrenaline come down and and see if we want to sleep so we went on the back porch just together. And we often don't get a moment together either because we have a three-year-old. And uh, and so we had this moment and it was somewhat peaceful. We didn't see the stars because it's very smoky. And yeah, it was kind of hard to breathe and it was kind of hot. It was kind of hot. And then we looked, um, we looked to the north and, and we could see the fire. <laughs> Whoa. We could just start to see the fire peeking out between some trees. And Oh, man, in that moment, I was not tired. <laughs> I was no longer no. tired. We just—I I was like, "Oh, I see the." I saw the glow, and then I kind of focused my eyes, and I was like, "I think I see the fire." And, and I looked at Jimmy. I was like, "Do you see the fire over there?" She looks at it. She goes, "Yeah, that's fire." And we just looked at each other. We're like, "Let's go now!" <laughs> right? Wow. And we were not tired, and we packed up really, really fast. Like, you know, get a water bottle, and and uh, we, and you know, we went over to the neighbors and woke them up. Hey guys, we see the fire. You need to get out of here. Mm. And and they started their process. And it turns out there were the, the sheriff came by a few hours later and said, "You guys got to go." So there were there was time. It was not moving quickly, but it was close. And but we didn't know that, so we were just like, "Whoa, let's wake everyone up and go." You know, we went to the two different neighbors and said, "Hey, you guys got to get up." And you know, can we help you? Our car's kind of full, but if there's something you know, essential, or you need us to move something with you. Let's help, let's help each other. And both neighbors were kind of in shell shock. So they couldn't organize themselves. They, they were like, no, we're good. We, we, we figured it out and um, help them think a little through a plan, 
you get woken up like, Hey, you have to evacuate. It's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you don't really think straight. <laughs> so I kind of walked people through a little like, okay, you know, first get what you need and then think about anything valuable, where are your pets, you know? And then, uh, we just left. And I guess I could say that's what it feels like later in our, we have a community sort of online bulletin board that everybody's part of around in this community. And, and this feeling that Jamie started having, and then I started having, which is bizarre that we would, that we had hours later was sort of a fixation on random things. Jamie became very fixated. Like, I can't believe I didn't just grab the tomatoes off the plants that were unripe and take them with me. Mm. Why did I do that? And, you know, I left a chicken in the fridge. Why didn't I just take that, for, that chicken with me? You know, it's going to be lost. And, and I'm sitting here going like, well, that was a super rational decision. You know, we didn't, if, if we'd taken every object like a chicken from the fridge, we wouldn't have any space. We had to make certain trade-offs, but she was just kind of fixated. Like, why did I leave that chicken there? And I lear- learned that everyone in our community had that same feeling. They'd, they'd done their best, and then they'd, hours later, when they couldn't get back in, they became fixated on something or some set of things that they didn't do. Or, you know, our neighbors said, oh, we left the windows open. I can't believe we left the windows open. Why did we do that? It didn't make any sense. And, and I myself also became fixated on certain things that just, you know, uh, for me, it was this bicycle. Why did, why did I leave this bicycle in the basement like that? I, just, <laughs> I could have put it somewhere else, or I could have put it on the roof of the car, could, whatever. You know, bicycle, easy object to repurchase, right? It was a rational decision in the moment, but it, what, I think what was surfacing was some emotional attachment I didn't understand that different people didn't realize that they had to these, to these things that they'd done or left behind. And I've found that that's a common experience, uh, part of the processing of potential loss. In our community, some people did lose their homes and others didn't. And so some people got a second chance at those feelings. Um, The ones who did lose their homes, I actually asked one neighbor about that, and he didn't even remember what I was talking about. <laughs> he, was, he was so fixated on new things, you know, like new problems, both both negative, like, I can't believe this, this is so horrible, and positive, like, well, I had that garage there that I'd been meaning to rebuild for year, years anyway. Um, you know, so experiencing the fullness of mm-hmm. of that. But anyway, just to your question about what does it feel like to evacuate I found it interesting that there was this aftershock that rippled through everyone uh, after the evacuation of like what, you know, of these strange things that we'd developed attachment to. How do you think the whole experience has changed you? Well, two things. One is I, I realized a little more how connected I am to the environment. I mean, the thing I think where many of us are experiencing is like when you breathe this air, it just really, well, for me, that's, that's been the most difficult part is breathing this air. It just changes my, it changes my outlook. It changes my performance. I, I, I feel like I can't be myself breathing this, this smoke, filled air um and it's not i don't know i don't think it's an emotional attachment to like i'm dying and i'm suffering i think it's just like literally it's hard to function 
Um, and of course you experience the lack of freedom. You know, you can't, you can't go outside for a bike ride. You know, you, you can't, uh, I did go out for a walk with a respirator on and there's, there's nobody out. You don't see life in the same way. Everyone's hunkered down. And that's what it felt like in the fire zone too. You normally there's sort of animals and there's plants and, and there's people around and everything was just locked down. People were, all the animals were in their burrows hiding. The birds had fled. Uh, such a stark contrast to now where the birds have come back. The deer are wandering through the forest, looking at everything burned, going, what's up? And, and the humans are doing the same. Um, so yeah, I experienced the, I experienced the nature connection and what, how dependent we are on our environment, even though day to day that's hard to encounter because our environment is so taken care of uh, for us. Right? I have milk in my fridge that I had very little, like no connection to sourcing. Um, and someday that milk might be engineered in a factory even more than it is now um, with very little connection to, you know, plains of grass and roaming animals. Uh, so it's hard to be connected to that when it's the, the API that I have to it is so abstracted. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so this fire is kind of like this breaking down of that API and you go, Oh yeah, that's right. When, when I can't just call this thing and have it process a function for me, I have to like build my own server and then install an operating system and then install a container management system and build my way all the way up to where I can get an API that does the thing I want. Um, you know, that decomposition and awareness of the underlying layers is painful. It's very inefficient. Hey, these efficient programs and processes I was relying on don't work anymore. But but they do offer an opportunity for reflection. Well, maybe that's not the way that should have been done. Maybe I can think of a better way to do that. Uh, a rearrangement of the stack, as it were. Um, so I think those are the the two things that I'm experiencing. You know, in the urban environment, you have the smoke and you sort of feel this rearrangement and connection to the underlying layers of the stack in the, in the more rural environment in the mountains where, uh, where it's, where the forest is regrowing. Um, I see literally possibility, right? There are madrone trees that are growing up sprouts that were being starved for light and air and, uh, space before, that have now germinated and can take advantage of the fact that all the tree canopy burned off. Um, there's, there's space now that things have been cleared out and, and animals, plants, and humans are all looking at everything going, well, since I'm going to rebuild here or reestablish, like, is this the best way to do it? Or should I, should I redo this? You know, Am I still going to live in this space? Or now that my kids have moved elsewhere, am I going to move too? Is this the site, the correct site for my home on my property? Or now that I have to rebuild one, should I move it to a better site? Um, there's logical stuff too. Like, did, you know, is my fire management plan correct and all that? But I think there's more fundamental questions like, 
do I want to be here? Is this the right place? Do, should I orient this differently? New technologies are available, right? I mean, if you rebuild a home in the woods, uh, in the past, you were really building a lot of protection, uh, protection from the elements. I need to stay warm. I need to stay insulated from vermin. Um, so you'd build a very, you'd build something with not a lot of glass and and a lot of kind of thick walls. Well, now glass technology is better, uh, insulation technology is better, roofing technology, all the technologies are better. So you can reimagine, hey, maybe I want to be more connected to the environment around me. And I can do that. Um, it's possible to live more off the grid now because you have wireless internet and solar energy. Maybe I don't have to put the house right by the road where it can access the utilities more easily. I can put it in a place that's more connected to nature. Uh, you know, I don't have to be as wed to the patterns that that were built before. And and I, that's kind of coming back to this uh, online community thing. I mean, we're all in our pods mostly in our homes or at least in our homes more than we were before finding ways to connect to people, finding ways to collaborate. Uh, maybe that means we can work differently. Maybe that means we can share ideas differently. Uh, maybe to organize as to organize for our ideas. We don't need to march in the streets. We can, we can write, material record material and display it online to people who can affect that policy that means that we can collaborate when we're not geographically together so people with similar interests and ideas for how the future should work who are affected by policy but don't live in the same community uh, can organize together to create solutions or advocate for themselves and we can do it using different memes. You know, the march is one meme. Um, songs are another meme, but maybe we can create TikTok videos, another short form video. Um, there's a movie, movie slash social movement going on right now on the internet, which is a sort of episodic unfolding of a, of a story that's taking place through an interconnected web of Instagram channels. Uh, a new form of storytelling. What's your new form of storytelling, John? <laughs> telling myself better stories. Hey. <laughs> or not telling them at all. No, no, no. <laughs> Tell me about that one. Not oh telling my myself the same stories. Well, okay, great example. So I had a situation, a situation, a colleague in air quotes with my wife last night and you know later at night is not the best time to have your clearest thinking <laughs> and so it's the next day and i'm realizing that mm, half three quarters maybe almost i wouldn't want to admit to all of it of course but a lot of my annoyance and the conflict we had was the story that i was telling about what she was doing or what she was up to <laughs> all of which was made up like i didn't have any data i was just i was just assuming and you know threading things together 
based on what I thought was probably happening. And it created, I created so much suffering for myself. It was totally unnecessary. So that's the first thing that pops into my head is just the stories and the conclusions and the meaning that we attach to things. It's a choice. Yeah. And that choice often benefits us. Um, you know, composing, Can. composing. I, and, I don't know if I would say often. <laughs> I, I like to think that in general we're functional, and but yes, you're right. Like can can often sometimes benefits us, right? We construct a narrative, attach an emotion out of a fa- uh, out of a pattern of facts because it's a shorthand. We don't have to reanalyze the facts in order to come to some pattern and conclusion, and we. And we base our behavior on that. Um, you know, my wife likes special objects, therefore she's going to be protective of those. Therefore, uh, I need to allocate space for this. That's a trade-off that I make. I feel put off by that. So I have other ways that I feel I want compensation for that. That's like a big shorthand and a narrative around a fact pattern. And the thing to to recognize is when it's time to decompose that. And so, Ooh, yeah, right. The yeah. story that you're mentioning that that story may have served you well at some point and been a valid shorthand for something, and maybe it wasn't. You know, maybe it was born of. <laughs> I'll say likely not. Cause, no, because <laughs> as you started, as you did your your riff at the beginning, I was writing down the different words that you said: scarcity, fear room, people, individuality, anyway. But the, the first two that you mentioned were scarcity and fear. Right. And whatever was going on, it was rooted in some fear that I had that was probably totally unfounded. Or, or maybe not, right. Maybe you don't need to be afraid of that. Maybe at some point you were and you don't need to any longer be afraid True. of that. Yes. Maybe you felt scarcity around around something like that. Um, maybe you don't need to any longer. And, and so it's about, you know, it's possible that these, these narratives never served you, but it's also really common that narratives did serve us and then don't anymore. And, yes. and so it's time to decompose those down to, their fact pattern. Okay, what caused what is what is the story underneath this narrative? I think that's a kind of a question you often ask. And then can I re, can I construct a new shorthand that is based on current facts? <laughs> yeah, but I guess I'm wanting to try to almost live into a place beyond that, which is to just not create the story to begin with. Right? Okay, just reevaluate. What are the facts? In, the in other words, yeah. Yeah, in other words, w- what are the facts of this situation? Wow, they're extremely limited. Okay, <laughs> so I can either go on a mission to go get some more facts, which is going to cause a different disruption and poten- potentially cause another wave of something I don't want. Or I can just say, well, I don't really know what's going on over there. And until I do, I'm just going to go do something else. Oh, but that's. And not have a story. Like that was that would have saved so much time and energy. I can't even tell you. Well, that is a beautiful thing. 
but it requires something really difficult, which is to live with uncertainty. Yes. <laughs> yeah, right back to the beginning. Yes. Live with uncertainty. Yes. Live with uncertainty um, and set aside fear. Yeah. Set aside fear. Like it's this easy thing to do. It's not. But uh, it, yeah, in my more conscious, and I think that's where the stillness and the space and all of those things helps me to operate more at, more often at this level. It's a, definitely a, a work in progress. Yeah, I hear you. And that's, that is actually an often cited benefit of, of a meditation or prayer practice is because it's a practice of making space and, and not reacting, right. <laughs> just returning. Right. And that helps with, with the moments of uncertainty and realizing that we can be more okay than we realize in yes. moments of uncertainty. It reminds yes. me like sort of the startup world is, it has a lot of that. And I, I found myself, and I think you, you have pointed out a number of these times in our journey together with OpenShift where there was uncertainty and people were really kind of concerned about it and making them feel nervous. And we were trying to construct all kinds of, of uh, <laughs> things to fill in the space of uncertainty. And I found myself often in those moments celebrating that uncertainty. Hey, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. And actually that's, that's wonderful because there's, and I think that's a unique gift. Well, it's just something to, to, Yes, you, I think you need a person on on every team who you you can't only have that person because you'll never do anything. No, right? <laughs> but but it's helpful to have a person or two or three with, with that you know who can remember to bring up that moment like you're describing, and, and sometimes it was you, by the way, uh, to 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 do the meditative practice and reflect like, hey, you know, we don't have to fill this space; we can leave this open. Because a possibility might arise here that's exciting. Uh, in fact, often we're looking for, we're, we're deliberately trying to create space to make room for an insight that, that may come from a customer or something that, that helps us know where there's real value. Yeah, and I would say that's one of the more evolved parts of me since we work together is, I think, yeah, as much earlier it was, we have to manage for all the, we have to manage for uncertainty and be prepared for uncertainty. And I read something recently and I'm trying to move more into this space now of there's actually so many good things that happen in uncertainty that we don't even know yet. Mm. That in other words, I like, we don't even understand the processes. We wouldn't, or we don't understand how amazing it's going to be or it could be. Mm-hmm. And my orientation was always, well, if you don't know, it's going to be bad. Not knowing <laughs> whatever's around the corner is probably bad, so you better be prepared. Mm-hmm. Versus whatever's around the corner is going to be awesome. Or something else. At the least, we get to experience the joy of discovering what is around the corner. Right. Which I think is really special. Yeah, and that would be living in the moment. That would be, yeah, the that it's not the <laughs> we're getting all zen here. I love it. <laughs> it's not the it's not the destination. It's the journey. 
Well, I mean, I can relate this to the startup, right? Because what we're trying to do in a startup is, you know, with with a thesis in mind. So the thesis allows for some focus. Um, I, I think it may be on this journey idea, you know, you set out in a direction and you say, well, we think our goal is to end up at Yosemite. But then, but then you create many, many, in the ideal case, you create a a huge number of opportunities for discovering the unknown along the way. And then you remain open to following the insights that you discover. I mean, this is the, the customer discovery process, the uh, agile development process, the iterative business model process. All of these are created to enable that, that idea that, that you're, you have a thesis that you begin with and that you continually refine, but you're really looking to remain open to insights arising that are unexpected Ideally, you dis- you discover something like that, and you have the resources to prosecute it uh, in that moment. So, so kind of coming back to our metaphorical situation here, you you are not afraid of what's around the bend. You have the moment of discovery. Hey, what's around the bend? It turns out that what's around the bend um, is a field of lettuce. And you happen to have brought with you uh, a whole set of cucumbers and and tomatoes and olive oil, and can make a delicious salad out of that field of lettuce. And that is when you've you know, you've really stumbled on something. That's 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 a beautiful moment when you've showed up to serendipity and with preparedness that happens to match. That's the moment we're trying to engineer in the startup journey. I mean, not engineer, but we're trying to sort of cultivate that moment. And you miss it both by not preparing and not bringing and harvesting the right stuff along the way. You also miss it by not going around the bend. Hmm. That could be a place to pick up next time because as you're talking, I'm thinking, yeah, I'd be slowing the car down. We got to go really slow. There might be something bad on the corner. <laughs> <laughs> and you're probably more like, no, let's speed up and find out what it is. <laughs> well, hey, let's come back around, right? Like, this is a difficult time. We're 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 worried about, you know, the the sky is full of smoke, and um, we're worried about our health we're worried about our our future our education our nature our country our economy our job there's a lot to be worried about in the face of worry it makes sense to slow the car slow the pace um that's kind of a natural reaction that you're describing but not completely stop but i'm also wondering if the the future could be much more bright than we realize. And it's through this act of decomposition, you know, maybe we just need to accelerate through this, um, endure some short-term pain. And, and we might find that there's exciting possibility 
on the other side of that. Not not that everyone, you know, not that we won't suffer along the way, and some will suffer worse than others, which is what makes it so difficult. Uh, it's hard to experience a feeling of justice when, you know, some trees are burning, some homes are burning, some people are getting unhealthy, some people are losing their jobs, and not others. That just is, that doesn't feel just, it's not just. But maybe the maybe the other side of that brings more possibility for those who've been affected the worst um, or more possibility for everyone it, it, with a more long-term perspective. Maybe we should just get on with it and, and do it more quickly or at least celebrate what we find as we go. That's probably the best idea. Yeah. I mean, well, kind of my concluding idea is, is also looking for the sliver, the 1% that's good. I'm not a fan of the, what's the gift in this? You know, what, what's, what's the gift that COVID has brought in us? Well, maybe 99% of it is not a gift, but maybe there is a little 1% that's, that's positive or a glimmer of hope or something we can take from it. Right. What are the possibilities that arise that we discovered what it, and, and are interesting. Which doesn't negate the bad stuff. No. I'm not trying to negate. It, it's a both and. Yeah, we need to suffer while we appreciate the possibilities um, and, and do process for, for our suffering, you know, and adjust correctly. Uh, I have many friends in the performing arts and they're all deeply suffering right now, as am I in a much smaller way. You know, anyone who's a lover of the performing arts is just hurting right now, but, but those who are the practitioners are hurting far worse. You know, yes, there's some possibility there. Mediums will change, new ideas will arise, but the destruction of an entire segment of of people's existence and that that's really really difficult but i think yeah both end you know we we need to mourn and look at what could possibly arise in that space Thanks for listening to The John Polster Show. Notes, links, and all that other good stuff for this episode are at johnpolster.com slash podcast. Send your questions, ideas, or a simple hello to podcast at johnpolster.com. Want to stay up to date on new episodes and receive notifications of upcoming events? Register your email address at johnpolster.com slash updates.